So Sarah, it was your birthday this week. Yeah. Was it was it a big one? Well, I think they're getting bigger and bigger each year. <laughs> scarier and scarier each year. No, it was a good one. Um, although it was in lockdown, had quite a bit more attention from friends and colleagues and, you know, you get nice online messages and went for a birthday run with my friend. Had a takeout, takeaway Chinese. So I was able to get out and about, but on a social distancing level, obviously, and thoroughly enjoyable. So probably one of the, my better birthdays, actually, I would say. Probably going to be memorable, isn't it, for those reasons. I am a massive fan of Chinese takeaway as well. Oh, what, what's your normal Chinese takeaway? Or do you go for a, a, a different one each time? No, I don't. I'm really bad. I found a Chinese takeaway which does special fried rice exactly as I like it. Because I used to, in a Saturday job at school, I was a pot wash in a local Chinese restaurant. Yeah. Which was amazing because at the end of the evening, you know, they could cook whatever you want and uh, that's how you'd finish the shift. So I got used to their way of doing special fried rice. And now I'm a bit of a special fried rice snob because if they don't <laughs> do it perfect, I just, I can't go back to that uh, takeaway. Do you, know, do you know who you sound like? Oh God, who? Sally from Harry Masala. <laughs> 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 um, but I'm the same. I'm a bit of a Sally when it comes to Chinese as well, because I like a chow mein and usually I order with mushrooms or it's with king prawns and I always ask them to add in the mushrooms. So it's a bit like a Harry Masala. Well, I normally just go... How special fried rice and chicken chow mein and occasionally change the meat option in the chow mein, occasionally barbecued ribs. I haven't gone further afield than that, although I really okay. should. So every time I go in there, I'm just like, the normal kind of order is always so good. Mm. So you're having I, a Chinese tonight then? No, I'm not. They're not, <laughs> open, they're not open on a Sunday. So talk about food. It leads yeah. quite nicely into one of our films. My, my mind's gone blank. Food? Yeah, food features quite heavily in Pulp Fiction. I suppose Burgers, it does. Milkshakes, yeah, bacon. I suppose it does. Fair enough. But before we do that, right? Last week, Pop you five. So, yeah, we go. <laughs> so I hadn't actually looked inside what this film quiz was that I got. Okay. Yeah. But in actual fact, it's pretty straightforward. It's general knowledge. So what I'm going to do is, you can choose the category. Yeah. And I'll give you three questions. Okay. See how I'm many you get. Terrible, probably at this. So you can go for. I predicted, by the way, what you're going to go for. You can go for classic, you can go for comedy, you can go for kids or action. Oh, it's going to be between kids and action. Action. (laughs) There you go. I predicted (laughs) it's the only one I got out of the wrapper. (laughs) It's very close. Very close. Right, here we go. You ready? Yeah, go on. Who plays the astronaut stranded on Mars in The Martian? Um, Matt Damon. Easy. Number two. Which movie franchise sees Keanu Reeves play computer hacker Neo? Uh, Matrix, which I watched over Christmas. Very good. Yeah. Uh, which movie franchise centres on the character Ethan Hunt? Um, Mission Impossible. Oh, there you go. Too easy. I- I'm going to keep going until you get one wrong. Let's see what happens. Go on. Leonardo go DiCaprio on. and Tom Hardy star in which historical action movie about fur hunting, which we reviewed? The Revenant. In which of the Bourne movies does Matt Damon not appear as Jason Bourne? Oh, uh, oh it's the one with the the guy that's the archer guy. Oh, I've got his name in, in Marvel film. Hawkeye. Hawkeye. Jeremy yeah. Renner. Yeah, Jeremy Renner's in it. I can't remember the name of the film. You beat me. The Bourne Legacy. 
I mean, uh, you did pretty well there, though. I always they call were... him the archer. I know he's Hawkeye, but I always call him the archer because he's always got a bow and arrow. He's always the one everyone takes the, the mick out of because he's got a rubbish Quite powers. Like he's just got... A bit Robin Hoodie, isn't he? A bit Robin Hoodie, yeah. But, I mean, he's not Iron Man. He's not like, got any huge superpower apart from being quite good with a bow and arrow. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Anyway. He looks handsome, though. I knew that's what you meant. <laughs> you didn't have to say it. Well, <laughs> uh, you know me now. Okay, right. So, Pulp Fiction this week, and the other one was the new Pixar movie, Soul. What are we going to start with? Pulp Fiction. Okay. Go old first. Yeah, let's go oldie first. So, I watched this today. So, this is very fresh. did you? This is very fresh in my mind. That's a long one to watch as well. It is quite a long one to watch. That's one of the reasons I didn't watch it last night, because I got in and I thought, this is going to be a late one. So I decided to leave. It's quite engaging, actually. We stuck it on last night and I thought we'll watch half of it tonight and then half tomorrow and then actually ended up watching the whole two two hour, 34 minute film. You know, you're right, though. It is engaging, but we'll get on to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. So 1994, second film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, Stars, here we go. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Tim Roth, Uma Thurman, Bruce Willis, Van Rames, Rosanna Arquette, Amanda Plummer, Eric Saltz, Christopher Walken, and a cameo from Tarantino himself. It won one Oscar for Best Screenplay, beaten out by Forrest Gump to pretty much all of the other categories, which was also, of course, the same year that Shawshank Redemption came up short as well. And this is... I would say it's a black comedy. I mean, it was in the crime category about two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster and his wife, and a pair of diner bandits centered around these three nonlinear narratives, which all have these little additional sideline stories and subplots. And it's divided into three main storylines that are shown via on-screen chapter titles. Uh, so you've got the mob contract killer, Vincent Vega, who's basically the protagonist of the first story, boxer Butch Coolidge, who's the protagonist of the second, and then Vince's partner, Jules Winfield, who's the protagonist of the third. So the film starts and ends with this lovebird thieving couple known only as their pet names, as they call each other, Pumpkin, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. played by Tim Roth, and Honey Bunny, played by Amanda Plummer, uh, who decide they're going to rob the diner that they're in. Um, which turns out a lot harder than they thought. Unbeknown to them, two of the diners there are Vincent, John Travolta, and Jules Samuel L. Jackson, who are two hitmen working for gangster Morellis Wallace, played by Van Rames, who have been sent on an errand to retrieve a very special, mysterious briefcase. This also doesn't quite go to plan. And so whilst on this errand, where they have to shoot a couple of uh, low-key drug dealers, we're led to believe. And they're here. they have to bring in the services of the wolf, played by Harvey Keitel, who is hired to, let's just say, make problems go away. And this is the Bonnie situation. That's this kind of title of this particular story that you see on screen. Um, and that's named after the wife of Jules' friend, Jimmy, who agrees to help them as long as they're out of his home by the time his wife, Bonnie, gets home from work. Then we have the Vincent Vega, Marcellus Wallace wife story. That's the actual name of it. When later Vince is also asked by Marcellus to take his wife, Mia, played by Uma Thurman, out for dinner to keep her entertained whilst he leaves town again. And like all of the episodes in the movie, it doesn't go well. Vince gets high on 
heroin and Mia, a cokehead herself, uh, mistakenly snorts the heroin thinking it's coke with quite horrible consequences. And then we have Butch, played by Bruce Willis, who's an aging boxer who gets paid by Marcellus to take a dive in his next fight for a cash award. He instead takes the money, bets it on himself to win a small fortune, but accidentally kills his opponent, goes on the run, not before getting his dead father's lucky golden watch back, which brings us a great little sideline story about his father's time as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, as told by his friend and fellow prisoner, Captain Coons, played by Christopher Walken. Hence the third story title, The Gold Watch. Now, whilst on the run, he's tracked down by Marcellus, which leads to them both being captured and imprisoned in this seedy basement of this hardware (laughs) store owner together with his friend Zed and the Gimp. Probably the most disturbing of all the events that go wrong in the movie, Uh, that one. Yeah, I would agree with that. And as I say, these seemingly unrelated stories all interweave in this non-linear way. So we kind of flash forward and flash back throughout the movie. I don't tend to watch movies more than once or maybe twice. This is no exception. So obviously I saw this at the cinema because... I remember going to see Reservoir Dogs, his first film, and it complete. I, it's the it's the first film I saw when I came out of the cinema. I just I thought, wow, it was the first kind of film that blew me away. And so this being the second, there was so much talk about it, and I was kind of curious to know what I was going to think watching it so many years on. But it's so engaging. I mean, the the opening scene with the diners, the way it cuts to the title, the the music, it reminded me, mm. I mean, Tarantino famously, you know, it takes a lot of inspiration from Spaghetti Westerns. And I was actually mm-hmm. thinking Good, Bad and the Ugly with the kind of um, the themes. Funny you say that. I was thinking this, the right at the start, it's so similar to like, so the, start, similar. The, like the Shining, the Good, Bad and the Ugly and the Bond style, but a bit more simplistic. Yeah. The and then it's... bursts full of this music as well. It's, yeah. Great. Yeah, and even the start of the titles feel yeah. like very Western-like. Western, they, yeah. They introduce, you know, it's one of those films where they show you the majority of the cast list before you then dive back into the film. So it's just over yeah. the music. So, so the first sequence with Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer, that, you know, the, the diner sequence is what is one of the many, many scenes you remember from the film, straight into kind of mindless dialogue conversation between these two lovebirds. And when we come out of the title, straight into the same kind of trivial dialogue that we have between Vince and Jules on their way to try and get the briefcase. And it was just like, oh, that's what I loved about the film. Straight in there, no mucking about. And it's those two characters that I love most, I think, Vince and Jules, just as engaging as I remember it. Anyway, I'll, I'll come on to my main kind of thoughts about the film. But yeah, I really liked it. So I had a gig along with it. So I think I've only watched this once myself. And I remember watching this at uni. And then most of my male friends having Uma Thurman's poster on their hall walls in their bedrooms. It was just iconic. It was just very well styled and bright colours and just very cool film, really, wasn't it? And the writing is excellent. It won the Oscar for that, obviously. And I think this format was kind of one of the first of its kind, I would say. And so many people have copied that first scene falling into a mid-story line or to the end of the story for their filmmaking as well. So it's, it's puzzles, puzzling pieces together. 
and it's really well done as well. I wonder if they, how they decided in what order that it should come as, because it could have been mixed up slightly differently. I think they've done it in a way that Tarantino's uh, can introduce the characters also. I love the music like you. I bought the soundtrack shortly after. It was just a big thing at uni when I and, and my friends when we watched it. And I hadn't watched Reservoir Dogs before, actually. I heard the hype around it and I thought, well, this is coming out. This would be quite a good film. And I was into, you know, going weekly to the movies anyway. And this is one that I picked to go and watch. And as I've already said, it's, it's right from the get-go, from the start. It's got that kind of Western, cool kind of feel and, and sort of, Looks a little bit dated at the start, you would think, but it's it isn't. It comes out with this bursting music, and the music's really strong throughout. And I've had in my head the Son of the Preacher Man by D- Dusty Springfield pretty much most of today. And also, there's got Let's Stay Together with Al Green, Jungle Boogie, another good one with uh, Cool and the Gang, and the list goes on, really. And I actually, I didn't look up to see how well the, the soundtrack did in the album chart. I can imagine it's probably one of the top album at the time as well. Um, I don't think it's really aged at all. I believe I believe it's set in the 90s, which was present day, because it was released in 1994. But you would think, is it in the 90s or is it in the in the 70s? Because you've got Vince Vega, Travolta and, and Jules Winfield, who's played by Samuel L. Jackson. And they give it that sort of 80s, 70s feel with, with their hairstyles and their dress sense. And yeah, yeah I, I kind of I was trying to work out where, when is it, but it must be the 90s. Would you agree with that, Rob? I know exactly what mm. you mean. I mean, I would say that Jules is haircut. You could say, well, that might suggest it's kind of late 80s. Mm. But equally, he could just have that haircut. Like you say, it could be this. It yeah. could be, it could be dated just... dated in 94. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really think about it when I was watching it. I just thought it was set I was trying to work it out, time. right? Yeah, I was trying to work it out right from the get-go. It was funny. We were like, when is this? And my husband said, it's the 90s. I'm sure it's the 90s. Mm. But, I mean, this film is really what launched Samuel Jackson's career. Uh, he'd been acting since 1973, but and he's had some bit parts. But this was, I would say, his his biggest filming. I mean, he's done for, since 1973. He was in Coming to America as a small part, and he, he was in Do the Right Thing, The Goodfellas, Patriot Games, which we mentioned him a while ago, Jurassic Park, we also mentioned him, and that was in 1993. And then he's gone on to do Jackie Brown, another Tarantino film, Django and Unchained. And also the Nick Fury Avenger Marvel series as well. And he's got 10 upcoming projects. He's hot on the uh, on the market, I would say, right now. And especially as he's also got a couple of Nick Fury films coming up as well. John Travolta, I would say this was his comeback. Again, acting since 1972 this time, only a year before Samuel Jackson. But he, he was in Carrie in 1976. But he, he kind of did face off and get shorty, thin line, primary colours after this. But they, he's kind of doing more bit parts, I would say, now. And, and I would love to see him in a good TV series, a bit like what Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant are picking up at the moment. But I know he's had some personal issues along the way and losing loved ones. And I can imagine he's got a, a lot of guts to just get out there and, and continuing to do what he does. So, so good on him for that. Um, my favourite scene is the one where we go to Jack Rabbit Slim's, the sort of 50s, 60s Planet Hollywood style restaurant. And, and the waiters, you know, include James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, Diana Dawes, I spotted, I think, and Dean Martin, etc. And, and they do this famous twist dance contest. And I mean, John Travolta is a dancer anyway, from Greece and Saturday Night Fever. And I love that scene. That's the best scene. And I think many people have tried to dance like that at parties when um, this kind of music pops up. Did you spot uh, Steve Buscemi? as Buddy Holly as well in in that scene. It's so funny you said that because um, I was just literally plonking that 
into a search engine because when I was watching it and I looked at who played who afterwards, I saw that Steve Buscemi played Buddy yeah. Holly, the, the waiter. And I knew yeah. that, oh, yeah, I remember He's watching so young, my... doesn't he? He's yeah, that's so what I was going to say because in my memory, he was seemed quite a young character. I love the way they brought, you know, some of the characters from, from Reservoir Dogs into in this film and then they continue to be from this film into other films as well. So I've already mentioned Samuel Jackson that he's in part of some of the Tarantino films as well. But yeah, I like the fact that he obviously gets on with the cast and they get on with him and they and they he carries them through to other films. They talk about food a lot. I've mentioned that already. Burgers, bacons and, and discussion on a $5 milkshake. What does that taste like that Mia uh, Wallace um, orders? So what do they call a quarter pounder with cheese in Paris? And the answer was royal with cheese due to the metric system. And it, it kept, that kind of continues through to a couple of scenes actually I love, I love it that yeah. scene where, where he goes off on that old spiel about Royale with cheese and then Jules yeah. says to him what do they call a um, Whopper Big Mac. No, he oh, says, Big Mac. Yeah, he goes, yeah, what do yeah. they call a Whopper and he goes I don't know I didn't go to Burger King <laughs> I just thought that was such a cool line <laughs> and uh, Big Mac the Big Mac the Big Mac yeah <laughs> Excellent. And then, I mean, the, the line also about uncomfortable silences when Mia and, and Vince were sat at the table. And it, it was, this was mentioned last week in Harry Met Sally. It's not necessary to talk to feel more comfortable with each other. And that's actually, can I just pick up on that point? Yeah, yeah. It's funny you say, um, talking about Harry Met Sally, because I actually thought the dialogue with this film, in the way in which it, so much of this is almost these trivial conversations stroke discussions that I had primarily I suppose with Vince and Mia or Vince and Jules um, or even at the beginning with Tim Ross character and uh, Amanda Plummer's character it is that kind of conversation that you saw in Harry Met Sally that kind of intriguing mm-hmm. engaging you just like to listen to what they're saying it's got doesn't yeah. it's got nothing to do with the actual plot of the story it's just so enjoyable listening yeah. to them talk and i think that's the quality of the of the script in this mm. isn't it well it's funny also because that harriet sally's broken up into parts as well but not all mixed up obviously uh it sort of runs in throughout the year doesn't it really whereas obviously this is a bit more jumbled up and you kind of think about where the different parts are towards the end but um the most disturbing scene for me was watching um well it was kind of entertaining at one point <laughs> because it does have humorous elements to this film it was when Butch, Bruce Willis and Marcellus uh, Wallace played by uh, Van Rames were sort of chasing each other and they just kind of came across each other by chance and they're kind of enemies and they end up having this chase and fight scene and there's blood everywhere pretty much and then they fall into this um, this shop owner's store and they get kind of get kidnapped really and then uh, this guy called Zed is brought in and, and another guy as well bring out the gimp let's just call it um, it comes out and it's um, it was quite shocking and disturbing actually and you kind of sense the the fear in uh, Marcella's and Butch's face when they're in that situation and obviously at the end they're, they're all is forgiven between the two of them and as long as there were certain rules met but yeah that was quite hard hitting I, I don't know whether you've got anything else to say but I, I mean I thoroughly enjoyed it to be honest it's um, I've been toying to you know what to give it there was a continuity issue with the first and last scene with Honey Bunny's line and Amanda Plummer's line it wasn't the same and I've also felt Jimmy's character played by Tarantino's acting wasn't wasn't the greatest but you know that's why he's pulled in other characters because I think he was going to play another character during the film to my understanding and you know I think this is the best Tarantino film in my eyes it's great acting great star cast 
great script writing, fantastic music. And that two hours, 34 minutes really whizzes by. And you wouldn't even thought that you'd sat there for that length of time because it's how well it's been broken up. And I love, as I said before, I love to see that some of the actors used in this for other films as well. So you've got, you know, you've got The Wolf by Harvey Keitel. You've got Buddy Holly, Steve Buscemi. And then obviously you've got Uma Thurman, who then played, later plays Kill Bill and, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's really good. Go on, have you got any comments, Rob? Yeah, I've got quite a lot, I suppose, to say about it. I mean, mainly because I think it was just such a seminal film, wasn't it, for our generation? But even mm. then, it still holds up, doesn't it? Mm. Um, yeah. And I was really quite surprised at how well it it holds up. In terms of Tarantino, I always felt the kind of explosive nature of that debut film of Reservoir Dogs and then Pulp Fiction. I've always felt that since then, I've not found his films as engaging. They had such an impact, those films, especially Pulp Fiction, obviously, for for the, just the whole style of it. Uh, and it's, it's a strange thing to say, but it felt and looked like a film that's been made by a movie fan, which obviously is what Tarantino obviously worked in a video store, huge fanatic movie fan. And I don't know, there was just something mm. about the film, you know, whether it's, I mean, the scene in Jack Rabbit Slims, I just thought was stunning. And, and you got this in other scenes, or, you know, when Vince and um, Jules first come into the, the hotel or the block of flats where the guys are right at the beginning, you get these long shots sometimes where the camera is quite a long way away from two people talking, uh, which I really liked. I loved that. That, that you almost felt like an observer. You weren't too close to the action. There were other scenes where you had these really nice meandering shots where you're kind of on the shoulder of a character for quite a long time, especially in that diner scene with Mia when Vince kind of gets distracted by, I think it was the Skeletrics or whatever, and he just wanders off and you're just on his shoulder. And of course, you know, in that diner, there, there's movie, the whole point of it, obviously, like you say, it's like Planet Hollywood. There's movie memorabilia everywhere. It's woven into the whole fabric of that scene. And I thought, well, it just kind of perfectly sums up Tarantino. But you can see how he's drawn inspiration from so many different filming techniques, from so many different films, from so many different genres, all in this one film. It's almost like it's, this is his ode to cinema in this fantastic yeah. film. And that's yeah. why I think I've struggled to engage with much since. The one film I do want to watch is Jackie Brown. I've heard very good things about Jackie Brown, although apparently yeah. it's a bit more of a dialed down Tarantino film, which I quite like the idea of. It's less brazen dialogue and violence. Um, so I'm quite keen to see that. I think I did watch Kill Bill Volume 1, wasn't mm-hmm. as engaged. And as I say, and I think since then... The more recent stuff, I just haven't really watched. I mean, I will watch. It's just not that when when a Tarantino film comes out now, I'm not racing to see it. I mean, I do love the film he wrote, True Romance. I mean, he wrote that. He didn't direct it, but that is one of my favourite films. And I love it's the little touches. Like we talked about the opening titles, the music. I love the little bit where... Mia says don't be a square to Vince and does that shape of a square (laughs) and you get that annotated dotted square and it pings away I think you could argue but because it's the first time we see Tarantino Mm. really do this there's no doubt about it there probably is a a little bit of style over substance I was never specifically invested in any of the characters because you can't it's but it but that's the same really with a lot of Mm. these kind of crime films you can't truly invest in a character who's you know who where they're all really bad or wayward and i think the whole style over substance thing is is really played out more probably in his in his films after this 
He's got a great amount of followers, hasn't he? Since you know he's been doing Reservoir Dogs, obviously. I would I would completely agree with you. I mean, I I watched Kill Bill Volume One, and I quite like that actually. But then it started getting ridiculous in Volume Two. And was there three? I can't remember. No, it's two. Uh, Long enough. The second one I didn't think was great, but the first one was fine. And then I watched Death Proof, and and that was it. I I kind of then lost my interest in some of the the Tarantino films, unfortunately. But this is definitely by far the coolest. Um, And actually, just talking about the, the, the budget as well behind it, we've got the top gross films that he's done is Once Upon a Time in America and Inglorious Bastards, which is around 325 to 375 million. And then Django Unchained is 425 million worldwide gross, uh, but it took 100 million to make. Whereas this only took $8 million to, to make and fairly low budget, really. $5 million for the cast. Bruce Willis taking the highest salary, I believe. And then it made a whopping $213 million worldwide gross. Um, so, it, you know, after having Reservoir Dogs, which only made $2 million worldwide gross, this was like, wow, okay, he's got something here. So, you know, let's channel some, channel some more money towards what he's doing and then see what happens. And I did see notice that Harvey Weinstein was attached to this film as well. So uh, when I saw his name, I was like, oh. Yeah, Miramax um, funded a lot of his films. I mean, I think for me, you've mentioned Inglorious Bastards, that one and Jackie Brown, I must admit, are the two films I've heard good things about that I will get round to watching and I feel Mm. bad I haven't. Although this was such a stylish film and mm. yeah obviously the non-linear thing was quite new back then and worked really well and it just had it just had such an impact for many reasons lots yeah. of new ways of uh, you know doing filmmaking really I like the fact that there was a part of this which it's not the same kind of violence as you get in Reservoir Dogs but I do like the way that in when Morellas ends up bumping into Butch that you get that shootout on the street where an innocent bystander is shot and Bruce mm. Bruce's character is kind of limping. That's the bit that almost feels like is lifted out of a Reservoir dog scene. And I quite like the way that times it does fall out of this kind of stylish music laden film, these fantastic, beautiful little vignetted scenes. It does come out of that occasionally to this kind of chaotic street style scene that you're more familiar with with Reservoir. I like that. I like the fact it did that. But it's interesting you say it flew by. I actually found that I was so engaged in the whole Vince Jules stuff at the very mm. beginning, and mm. and definitely the whole um, sequence with Vince and Mia. I actually found that once we really then got into Butch's storyline, when he initially went on the run and he goes back to his flat and he realizes his girlfriend hasn't picked the watch up from from his flat, and yeah. he goes back, and I felt like. For me personally, and obviously then the, when Beretta's finds them and they end up in the you know at the hands of, of uh, Zed and the Gimp, I actually found that for me during that part of it, it plodded a little bit, but it's a, it's a minor quibble. And you've mentioned the soundtrack, obviously. Yeah. I mean, so many. So when, when Son of a Preacher Man came on, I saw, oh, it's just it's so good. <laughs> so so good when they, that, it's yeah. so good when, they come, when, when she comes back and she puts that track on. And he's in the bathroom persuading himself not to crack onto Mia while she's about to nearly OD. All that stuff, I thought that that was my favorite. Those are the characters, I suppose, and those sequences were my favorite. I mean, it's interesting because that same year, Natural Born Killers came out, which is a 1994 film, which is a similar ilk, I would say. Very violent, 
soundtrack was fantastic as well and it got you really like hyped up because of the loudness of the music and everything and that was done by Oliver Stone but it's really interesting that two films similar style I would say came out the same year I mean, he wrote the story for Natural Born Killers. And, and that's why it's interesting. Around that time, you've got Reservoir Dogs, which he directed, wrote and directed. True Romance, which he wrote. Then followed by Pulp Fiction, which he wrote and directed. Yep. Then followed by Natural Born Killers, which he wrote. And then run, obviously, to Dustledore and Jackie Brown. But that little patch there, like you say, 92 to 94, 95, those were those years that those kind of films just really caught on. And I think it's, it's down to Tarantino, I, I would yep, say. Definitely. Yep. And it's so hard now because so much of what made those early films this film pulp fiction great in some ways is the reason why i think his later films are a slight downfall because i think what then was so impactful and so new you see the same devices often in his films now which which then feel gimmicky a bit tired we've seen it before but this was the film where it all exploded i don't think he's bettered this No, I don't think he has either. So should we give some ratings? Go on then, you go first. I think this is possibly the the coolest film I've ever seen (laughs) without without special effects. So I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. Oh, I can't believe you've done that. I can't believe you've done that. (laughs) Do you know what? My husband said to me, I I said, what shall I rate this then? Thinking, you know, he'll probably think I'll go low. And he did. He said, oh, you'll probably give it a 7 out of 10. I went, "Mm, okay, you'll have to wait and see then. So 10 out of 10 for me, yeah. No film is perfect. And that's what I decided last week when Harry Met Sally. There, there are some really cracking films out and this is iconic. Okay, well, that's it then. I'm going to give it a 10. I was watching this thinking, it was another one of those, like, oh God, I think this could be a 10. Because mm. like you said, and I, th- I think for me, the main reason, and you just summed it up in a nutshell, it's probably the coolest film I've ever seen. And it doesn't age. It's not aged. It's still cool. Everything about it oozes coolness. (laughs) And like you say, because it's so iconic... I, the only, I, I would have potentially marked it down purely because I thought it lagged in that one spot. But yeah, yeah. like you said, no film's perfect and everything else is so incredibly great. I will also give it a 10. And just to be annoying, if I do find a film that is perfect, I will give it 11 out of 10. <laughs> I have not found one yet. <laughs> Okay, so all good. Gosh, we're starting off well in, in 2021, aren't we? I know, absolutely. On to our new film, shall we? Which is Soul. And actually, I've, I've kind of been talking about this really since the end of last year because I was quite excited that Disney was bringing out a new film on Disney Plus that launched was going to launch on Christmas Day. And it's almost like a Christmas present for all from Disney, I would say. But I guess they would have released it on, at the cinema, I believe, a bit like Mulan would have been released as well. It's currently only on Disney Plus, but I can envisage it will be later on, be on Amazon Prime and Sky, etc. as well. So a bit like what they did with Mulan. Uh, which I actually watched Mulan today, uh, which was which was um, bad ratings from critics, but I quite enjoyed it. So uh, another one to watch for you on on the Disney Plus side. It ticks a lot of genre boxes. Soldiers. Uh, it's got animation, adventure, comedy, family, fantasy, and music as well. It could have added this to our music category. It was highly rated on IMDb, eight point two, which is not many animations that are rated that highly comparable to Toy Story, I would say, on, on that front. And, you know, you can watch it with all the family, I feel. However, 
uh, I was looking forward to watching this on Christmas Day and and my kids had other ideas because they wanted to check out their new console game. So I actually watched it with my husband, but have since last week have watched it with my nine-year-old as well. So I've got a couple of different perspectives, really, from an adult to child. Uh, it's directed by Pete Doctor, a writer and director, and he's also done Inside Out, Up, Monsters, Inc., Wally, and Kemp Powers, which is more, he's more recently um, developed some animations, but previously done Star Trek's Discovery. And the story and screenplay is by Mike Jones as well. Um, so the three of them wrote this and he's fairly new, but he was additional crew on Coco. So had that Coco perspective also to bring to the table. The cast includes Jamie Foxx, Tina Fey, Richard Iodi, Graham Norton, I thought was fantastic in this film, and Angela Bassett as well. So the story, Joe, who's played by Jamie Foxx, is a part-time music teacher. And, you know, after the first scene, he's offered this full-time role. But his passion was really to be a jazz musician. He gets a call from a former student and the opportunity for an audition with Dorothea's band. And Dorothea was played by Angela Bassett. And uh, this is at the Half Note Club. Uh, it's a very exclusive jazz club, which he's really excited about. She offers him to play that night because she likes what she hears. And he's a pianist. And um, have to be careful how I say that one. And uh, on, his, on his way home, he was texting people, phoning people, and then, you know, had a couple of narrow misses of death, I would say, and then falls down this manhole. Now, on the verge of death, he finds himself in the great before, a place where souls are given personalities and he tries all sorts of means of getting back to his own body. And he cheats his way into a mentoring program and he's paired off with number 22, which is Tina Fey's character. 22 has had many mentors in the past, however, is missing that last piece of the puzzle to create a full personality. And these personalities are normally sort of dropped into a baby uh, down on earth. Basically, we follow 22 and Joe's adventures from there, which leads us to I'm pleased to say a happy ending for all but I, I don't want us to give too much away because it is a fairly new movie so we're conscious of that I think I think it's very different to any other Disney film Pixar film we've seen and the graphics are a mix of Pixar rich quality humanized animation then there's a glow in the dark Picasso style 80 and also from the 80s UK TV show Will in the West style animation and then um, you've got a bit of inside out animation in, mixed in there as well so I would say there's three kind of formats of animation within this film which i thought was quite interesting but rob what did you think well i absolutely loved it i didn't know too much about it to be honest Mm. i deliberately didn't want to know too Mm. much about it because i'd heard quite good things and i watched this on my video projector onto the wall so i probably didn't see it in its full glory but i could still totally appreciate how incredible, first of all, the animation is in it. I think we've got to the point with animation, and I think especially with Pixar, that you just take it for granted just how incredible and almost lifelike, you know, the way they depict these characters now. And it, yeah, I mean, Sarah just just kind of wiggled her fingers there. And for me, there's a scene in this where Joe is playing the piano and the camera shot is just looking down on his hands. And it is... I mean, I can't quite explain it. It sounds daft to say how moving that was. And it wasn't just what was going on in the storyline at that point. It was just how beautiful the animation was. I, I, couldn't, mm. I just couldn't quite get over it. I'm wondering whether they also, the fingers are probably, if you matched it to somebody really playing, I bet they matched. So the fingers were pressing keys that you would press if you were actually playing that piano. Yes. I mean, well, I, I, and it's incredible. 
It's incredible. I mean, however they did it, I mean, no doubt they would have drawn yeah. upon, um, you know, using a real life model in some way. But still, it's not like, you know, it doesn't look so real that it kind of feels like it's an animated version of someone playing the piano. That sounds strange. It does look, it is, it's animated. It's in that world of animation, mm-hmm. but it is yeah. incredible. So that goes for the whole thing. And it's not just the way that they're able to bring that whole the world of jazz to life and playing of the instruments, the way they depict the New York kind of scenes, I think is beautiful. It's so well done. Uh, but also, of course, Pixar is so known. You know, they're a pioneer, obviously, of this of this kind of animation. And so I love it when they are so brave and so confident that they can throw in different animation styles. Yeah, so, yeah. So there are these kind of, you know, these existential scenes of Joe's soul on the edge of before world and afterworld where they you know they go to this kind of very much black and white and then there's a scene where he's falling and it's it's almost like a line black mm. and white line drawing mm. and then the guides in the great before world you know they're, they're almost like these picasso like line drawings mm. and it doesn't ever kind of get in the way you don't ever kind of think oh that's that's weird it just works mm. and it works mm. because the the whole story and what they're trying to talk about in the story is just so solid. It's so universal, both to adults and children, that you get lost in the message, you get lost in the characters, you get lost in the whole theme of this. And it's just so obvious when you watch it, it's been made by people who really, really care about what they're doing. And, you know, I've often talked about there are some animations where you kind of think, you know what, let's see what a child thinks because they're the mainstream audience. And then there are those films that often have those kind of gags that are in there for the adults. And it's more of a kind of a, you know, a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Whereas Pixar is so much more sophisticated than that. This isn't relying upon like the little kind of adult jokes they've squeezed in there. It's appealing to adults because of the message behind it and what it's talking about. It's just as relevant to us as it is to children. Now, I don't know, you know, my children liked this and I haven't had the chance to kind of ask them, did, did at any point they find this too confusing? Because there was a moment in the film where there's the body swap, where yeah. they accidentally... quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so Joe, Joe ends up in the body of a cat and and 22 ends up in his Joe's, body. Yeah, um, Joe's body. And I felt before that, everything felt very almost, given the fact it's still quite an interesting theme of life and death, was quite straightforward. When that happened, there was definitely a bit of a departure into a slightly different type of film. But there was so much comedy in that and there was so many interested, the way in which they use that mechanic to lead you to that final takeaway, I suppose, of the film, I thought worked really well that it didn't really matter. Whether at any point for a child, maybe it felt like it was a bit like what's going on now, I don't don't know. But for me, there's so many bits when I was watching I just thought it didn't feel like I was watching a kid's animation it's just like just totally engrossed in it wowed by it such an incredibly heartwarming story Mm -hmm. the message that you know this whole idea of everyone has a purpose and that's what that's your drive whether it's your job whether it's your passion whether it's something you want to be and that's what keeps that's what's driving you 
And if yeah. you don't ever kind of quite get there, that's kind of what defines you as a person. Whereas obviously this is about appreciating the everyday things around you. You know, that's where the greatest gift of life is. That's the rewarding aspect of life is, mm. is it might well be what you think is your passion or your spark. You may think it's one thing in particular, but in actual fact, that can often lead you down a different path and you should kind of think more and appreciate what's around you. I mean, that's what I took from it. Yeah. And I'm sure different people can take different things from this. But that that sounds almost a bit cheesy, but it's just it, done so no, well. Quite, yeah, I thought it was quite interesting because it's almost it's about life lessons and how souls can become lost souls and appreciate the tiny moments and purpose of life and your your life and and it's it was sharing all sorts of different emotions, a bit like Inside Out, really. And it did have elements. I mean, obviously, the director and, and, and writer delivered that Inside Out also. So they brought some elements of that into this film, the best bits, I would say. Yeah, it just kind of made you think about it. But I, I, I did find it lacked on occasions the real deep, harrowing, emotional pieces like you would get in Frozen or in Beauty and the Beast, where, you know, somebody's in real trouble or, or something like that. It kind of plodded along a little bit like in this mix sort of up and down but not extreme up and down emotions i would say well i suppose i know what you mean that there wasn't mm. there's no hugely dramatic moments it's kind of like an essay on life in a way it's mm. not i suppose it's not designed to have that these big peaks or these big crescendos of in the plot and the story you could argue that it could have done with that I mean, for, for me, I felt that whole body swap thing was a slight misstep in the film. It took me out of, I suppose, the slightly more interesting, thoughtful, cerebral part of the film. Yeah, but I bet a... if you are, sorry, I bet if you ask your kids, though, that's probably their best bit because it's funny. It might be. It might well be. Yeah, yeah. But I still, I, I think as an adult, the rating you give this as an adult is just as valid as the rating a child would give it. And it's like you say, obviously, the director did Inside Out and you can see it's a similar thing with Inside Out adults like it but they don't like it because the, the writing's trying yeah. to connect with them on a comedic level that, and that's why I love this it's a grown up animation which works for any age I like the fact that Jamie Foxx I mean he's been doing some hard hitting movies recently he's done Just Mercy uh, which is about Death Row and he's done Project Power which I think was on Netflix and he's been doing sort of more working with TV networks recently which is interesting a bit like with Hugh Grant and, and Nicole Kidman doing something similar I didn't think he'd been in any other animations but then I looked him up and he's been in Recently in Netflix, Neo Yokio, which also has Richard uh, Ayodi as part of the cast. And it's a great star cast. I was looking at it. It's got Jude Law, Seasons Around, and etc. He was also Nico in uh, Rio 1 and 2. And um, he's got a connection with Tarantino as well, as we discussed earlier. And he's got 12 upcoming projects. He's got Spawn and Spider-Man sequel coming up. So he's, he's still, he's a hot property as well, Jamie Foxx. And it's it was nice to see him in, I mean, I know he's a great singer as well, which they, he didn't sing at all in this, but he's obviously got a musical connection. And I don't know how well he plays the piano. I can assure you, probably it was somebody that was a, a good pianist, no doubt. But yeah, nice to see Jamie Foxx in, in this animation. And Tina Fey, she's more known, I think, for TV, like 30 Rock and been in some other comedies. But she has also done a lot of animation She's done The Simpsons, The Awesomes, which I've not heard of, Venus and Ferb, Megamind, SpongeBob, Ponyo, Sesame Street. And interestingly, the connection with Inside Out as well as Dear Avenger 2 was her first animation. It was with Amy Pooler, who was Joy from Inside Out. Quite interesting there. 
Jamie Foxx is such a versatile actor. I've never feel it's another film that's on the list. I really need to watch is Ray. It's the Ray Charles biopic. Yeah. And obviously he's a musician in his own right. Mm. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me that I'm mean, as I say I haven't seen Ray, but obviously I imagine the piano playing in that probably a lot of it was him. So maybe probably, but, right. Okay. Anyway. I haven't seen Ray either, actually. No, <clears throat> but you know, as an animation, I don't know whether he would have been responsible for the piano playing in this. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I just say Pixar keep making these, yeah. these movies because they're just amazing, and I, this is going to have to be at least nominated for for an Oscar. I can't yeah, be amazed course. if it's not there or thereabouts. If Pixar released something like this in the cinema, I'd be interested to know whether it's made the same impact that it's come out during lockdown as it would have done if it had gone out at cinemas. You would think the marketing, therefore, behind it might have been bigger. I don't know. I'm just thinking more of its impact. And I say that because... I hope no one misses this or may have heard of it, but because it's not in the cinema, it's not really out to great fanfare and and, has, and, and doesn't watch it. I think mm. everyone should watch this. I really do. Mm. I think it's brilliant. Oh, it's great. It's a great film. What I did find really interesting is that this was on Disney Plus and it's about death really in life. And then on BBC, they had Coco running when I was watching it. It was around the same time, actually, on, B- on Christmas Day. And I was thinking, there's all this death going on. And what's something a bit more jolly around this time now? Because, we've, you know, we're going through this COVID-19 pandemic, which is morbid as it is anyway, and something more uplifting. I think this, this film does have a bit of an uplift as well, which is great. Whereas Coco, I, I didn't quite get that, that sentiment as much. But I sounded my son out. I said, is this better than Coco? Because he didn't really like Coco and I wasn't sure about it either. And he goes, yes, it is. Is it better than Inside Out? So, and I've kind of been looking at comparisons to, to other films as well. The Crudes, I gave it seven. I would say it's probably better than The Crudes. And, oh, God, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then Big Hero 6, I gave 8.5. I would say it's probably on a par with that. So do you want me to give my rating first? Because I think I'm nearly there anyway. Yeah, go and on then. You so mine's 8, 8.5 out of 10. I think it's a really good watch. It's quite incredible what Pixar can do really with their animation. And it's nice to see slightly different formats as well. It did really remind me of that 80s TV show, Willow Willow and the Wisp, I think it was, with Kenneth Williams. He used to play that character with these sort of Picasso style Jerry's yes, and Terry. Yes. But yeah, it was, it was it was completely different to what they've done before, I think. I think it's so difficult to compare. You know, I think there are so many animations out there, like, like you say, The Crudes or Big Hero 6 or, mm. you know, mm-hmm. films that are there. Primarily, they're, they're this kind of entertainment. Whereas I think for this, it just does a bit more than that. And mm. I, it almost, it's almost like Pixar almost creating this category for themselves, of which Inside Out this would be part of. Anyway, for me, I really, really liked it. But the part of the film, as I say, which was the whole body swap, which which turned it, started, veered it more into a comedy for a period of time before I think it then found its feet again. It, it didn't completely lose me, but that's the only reason I'd mark it down. But for me, it's still, I'd still give this nine and a half. That's how much oh, I liked wow. it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's Gosh. how much I liked it. Oh, very um, good. So Very good. Go. I, I think it, I can't think of any other animation that's come out this year. It has to win an Oscar, surely. It's I will a, eat my hat. I haven't got a hat, but I will find one if it doesn't win an Oscar. Yeah, there's, there's, there's certainly no other <laughs> mainstream uh, animations that have come out no. that come close to this. So there you go. Maybe it's been another amazing week. Two tens and an yeah, eight and a half and a nine half. So it's yeah, another yeah. high scoring week. So are you going to let our listeners know what our new film for is for next week? We've decided upon Wonder Woman 1984, haven't we? 
we have, which is released on the 13th of January. So it sneaks it in for our next review. It's released on Amazon Prime and Sky, I believe, and probably other channels as well, other networks, I believe, as well. So that is the one we're going to watch for this week. I watched the first Wonder Woman and I really enjoyed it. I just thought it was just very well done, easy to watch. So I think it's one of the well, one of the best, if not one of the better films that Warner Brothers have produced in this whole DC universe or whatever the hell it's called. So I'll be interested to see whether they've managed to follow it up with anything decent. Yep. I will read the spiel. So Diana must contend with a work colleague and businessman whose desire for extreme wealth sends the world down a path of destruction after an ancient artifact that grants wishes goes missing. This is open to quite a lukewarm reaction, so I'm curious to know mm. exactly what it's going to be like. But, I mean, that's yeah. mainly, obviously, by but critics. So it'll be seen yeah. to see. Right, so that's our, that's our newbie, and then we've got newbie. an oldie. Yeah, so not, not crime, obviously, because you've uh, I chose that last week. So, so it's your turn to choose out on my, on my list, my genre list. It is thriller stroke horror. Oh, okay. Let's see. Right, so I have 27. No, it's 2021, so let's go with 21. It is JFK. Oh. Quite a long one. Yeah, Oliver Stone film. <laughs> Kevin Costner. a long one. Crikey. This, yeah. I mean, this is three hours, nine minutes, so I've gone straight to it. I don't know if you listened to Louis Theroux's podcast series. They're really, really good. Anyway, the most recent one is with Oliver Stone. And it's really, really interesting, oh, yeah. obviously touching on a lot of his films. Do you know what? I think of this film, look at the poster. I think of Empire Magazine. This was peak Empire Magazine subscription time for me, this whole era. And you know I'm a fan of the Kev in this this little purple patch. (laughs) And it is long. But it's a great cast in this. It's a good film as well. It's a great film. It did. So New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison discovers there's more to Kennedy's assassination than the official story. Director Bob Stone, starring Kevin Costner, Gary Oldman, Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau's in it, Kevin Bacon's in it. No, it's a great, well, it's a great film, but it is a long film, isn't it? <laughs> it is a long film. Actually, yeah. Kevin Costner does do quite a few long films, a bit like Dance of the Wolves Dance as well, of the Wolves, it? there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's streaming on Amazon Prime at the moment, and you can rent and buy on most other channels, so Sky Store, Apple TV, also got YouTube. But do have a look on your normal channel, because I actually found uh, Pop Fiction on Dave. So take a look at your normal channels as well. Okay, we're going to wrap up today with another little movie quiz. Now, this time, I'm going to be picking from the other category that you nearly picked, kids. Okay, let's see see how we get on. In which country is Mulan set? China. Boom. In which US city is the Princess and the Frog set? I'd be terrible at these. It's either Georgia or Oklahoma or something. No, that's probably not the right. It's New Orleans. Orleans. So close. Let's keep going. Wesley and Buttercup are characters from which film? I would, the Princess Bride. I would be terrible. Uh, I've only got one of these so far. Wow. Okay. They're, that, they're harder. I'm glad I didn't go for kids earlier then. <laughs> that, how about this one? That'll do, Pig, is a line uh, from which? Oh, babe. Babe, of course it is. Okay. And this is a good one to finish on. Which animated film won an Academy Award for Best Original Song for Remember Me? Coco. Coco. <laughs> it all comes back to Coco. <laughs> Excellent. 
Well, that was that was good fun. We should do more of that, more of these games. I think pop so. Quiz. A bit like every time I say pop quiz, it reminds me of the baddie in Speed. Oh yes, what Dennis Hopper? Yeah. Okay, well maybe this is it. From now on, each week we take in turns. You bring some quiz pop tastic questions. Other games sounds so good. I like that. Good week. fun. Right. Okay, dokie. Well, have a good rest of the week, and I'm quite excited to see Wonder Woman 1984. It is. It is quite nice watching some. It is because I think sometimes you find many reasons not to watch what's coming out at the time. So this is a nice way of doing it. And I, I presume that we're going to probably have to pay lower price than cinema prices, but there will be a charge to watch Wonder Woman 1984, I would just to warn our listeners. But if you're watching it as a family, you're saving a heap of money because it's probably going to be about £15, I would have thought. But if anyone's out there who love their films, there's, there's no yeah. choice now anyway. Yeah. If you, you've exactly. got to replace the cinema experience somehow, exactly. if that means spending yeah. some money, I think people will do that. Yeah, all good. All Great, well, thanks very much, Rob. And uh, you. Have a lovely week. I will, and I'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.